First Peter chapter 1. No doubt you've already come to the conclusion we're gonna, it's going to take us a while to get out of these two first two verses. A few more weeks. We're going to be looking at uh, chosen by God. And we're going to look more closely than we did last week. We did a little overview last week. And we're going to begin to look much more closely now at this issue of election, the doctrine of election, uh, that is being chosen by God. This is a very, very important issue. And we are going to, in the next several weeks, look at uh, what we can define as the elements of election. And the first of those elements we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look at the nature of election. The nature. What is the nature of election? And to, to begin, if you'll just look with me at these verses again, uh, Peter, in his salutation, his greeting, identifies himself an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. I love that. That is always a marvelous uh, greeting. Um, if you look again at the first phrase of verse 2, some of you in your Bibles, it's the end of verse 1, uh, the phrase, who have been chosen. Literally, in the Greek, it is to those who are chosen, or to the chosen. And that's really going to be the substance of what we're going to talk about, the, the, the nature of election to those who are chosen. If you look at chapter 2, verse 9, we see an interesting testimony. He says, but you are a chosen people. Again, he uses that, that, that word, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now notice, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So again, we see uh, that we are, in fact, Christians because we have been chosen by God to be Christians. Can we grasp that reality? That you've been chosen by God to be a Christian? It's a, it's a, it's a substantial issue, a substantial reality. Um, Peter is saying very, very simply this. He's saying that Christians are people uh, that God has chosen to belong to himself. That's all he's telling us. Beloved, that is simply the nature of election. God has chosen people to belong to himself. If you look at the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 14, we see uh, another testimony to this reality. Acts, chapter 15, and verse 14. This is the council at Jerusalem, and uh, Peter has made his report. Uh, Paul has made a report and uh, James now uh, speaks up, and James says, uh, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, meaning Peter, has described to us how God, now notice what he says, how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. And literally it means taking out from among the nations taking out from among the people or the Gentiles. The Gentiles is just another way of saying among the nations. That God has chosen people out from among the nations, among the Gentiles, to be a people for himself. God's whole plan is to choose a people for himself. That's his whole plan. Now, I don't know about you, but something inside of me resists that. Something inside of me struggles with that. And um, we say, you mean we are just chosen? Do you struggle with that? I'm just chosen? That's it? Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're human, if you're, if you're naturally uh, living in this life, you're going to think, that's it? I'm just chosen? Do you struggle with that? Most people do. I, I struggle with that. I mean, I'm thankful for it. 
But I think that if you, if you struggle with it, you, it what the reality is, is it's our fallenness, the fact that we are imperfect, that's where the struggle lies. Um, you see, it seems like, doesn't it seem like that there, there ought to be a, a part of that salvation that depends on us? Doesn't it seem that way? Yes. I mean, when you, people have said to me, but, 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 I, 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 and, and, and if you understand, the more you understand this doctrine of election, that you're going to struggle with it. You're going to struggle with it. And that's a good thing. Because un unless and until you struggle with it, uh, you're not going to be able to uh, begin to get your mind somewhat around it. So understand that that's very natural for us. So it seems like we ought to have a part, or a part of our salvation depends on us. And I want to suggest to you, as I did last week, I think that really stems from our own pride. I, wanted, I want to play a part. I want to be able to take some credit in this. After all, I do a good job of, of justifying myself in other areas, don't I? Do a good job of defending myself in other areas, making myself look good, don't I? Don't we all do that? So why should it be any different with respect to this whole issue of salvation? Why shouldn't I want to express myself in this? And I think it comes from that deficit in us because of our fallenness. And we'd also like to think that, well, this whole issue of election, the fact that God chooses some, it sounds unfair, doesn't it? Did we cover that ground last week? It sounds unfair. And I think that too is our pride. I think that we somehow uh, end up judging God on the basis of our standards. And again, I think that just, tra that just tracks right back to our own, our own pride. Who are we to judge God, really? You see, I don't, I don't think that we really do understand what fair is. Think about that. Do we really understand what fair is? We have varying uh, perceptions on what's fair, don't we? Sure. But do we really understand what fair is? I think not. I don't think we do. Beloved, we must, when we, when we deal with this issue of God choosing the nature of election, God choosing, we must retreat to faith. And as we retreat to faith, we ask this question, what does the Bible teach? Is the Bible not our source? It's the place we go, isn't it? It's our absolute last word and resource. If we can't believe the Bible, we can't believe anything. We have no leg to stand on. So we want to ask ourselves the question, what does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach that we are chosen by God, or doesn't it? And so we've got to do a little Bible study to try to address that issue, if you will. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. This is the parable that Jesus tells, the, parables, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Many of you are familiar with that parable. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. He's going to, make a, he's going to uh, give us a... Uh, um, an example, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and then sent them into the vineyard. So then he goes out at the third hour again, does the same thing. He goes out at the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. And you read through the whole parable, and you, you come to this obvious conclusion that it's the landowner who, who goes out, he selects the workers, doesn't he? He selects the workers. He called them into his service, doesn't he? He sends them into his vineyard to work, does he not? And at the end of the day, doesn't he reward them fairly and faithfully and generously? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. That's the essence of the parable, isn't it? That's the essence of the parable. But what I want to suggest to you is that the whole parable, all the way to the end... It's, it's the landowner, it's, the, it's, the, it, it's the, 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 the one who owned the vineyard, he picked out who he wanted. He sent them out into the vineyard, and he rewards them. And in our case, he rewards them with what? Eternal life, doesn't he? It's his choice. Remember the little argument that goes on at the end of the parable? The guy says, well, you know, I worked all day, and 
And he says, don't I have the right as the landowner to pay? Didn't we agree? And so we see there, we see there this picture of election in the landowner picking the landowner sending them into his vineyard and the landowner taking the initiative to uh, reward them and again in our case with eternal life let me call your attention to john's gospel john chapter 15 there's lots of these passages in john's gospel we'll study them over the next weeks but i want to focus on one particular one this is john chapter 15 and verse 16 and i want you to know notice jesus words a familiar verse to many Jesus says to his disciples, what? Read it with me. You did not choose me, but I what? I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. But we say, wait a minute. I chose you too. And he says to us, no. No, you didn't choose me. I chose you. That's what I just told you. Didn't he tell us that? See, we, may, we want to object. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I chose you. No, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That's what I told you. John chapter 17, verse 9. Now this is Jesus, what we call his high priestly prayer. This is the night before he dies. This is at the Last Supper, if you will. And he's praying, and he's praying for his disciples. He says, I pray for them, and I'm not praying for what? The world. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these who you have given me, for they are yours. You get that? Who's he praying for? The ones, the ones that, that belong to the Father, the ones that the Father has chosen, and the ones that the Father has given to who? Given to Son, given to Jesus. That's who he's praying for. You read the whole passage. The book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts. There's a, a powerful, powerful passage here. In the book of Acts, in chapter 13, verses 46 through 48. Now this is the point at which Paul and Peter and the others have been evangelizing the Jews. Remember, the early church was predominantly Jewish. And then after a season, uh, the Jews began to turn away and reject the gospel. And this is the point at which Paul now, along with Barnabas, announces that they're turning to the Gentiles. And he quotes uh, again from Isaiah, the Messianic prophet. And it's in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Remember, the, the gospel always went to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. They had priority. We had to speak the gospel to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. Now he quotes from Isaiah. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now notice verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And here's the last, here's the, here's the point we want to get to. And all who were a what? Appointed for eternal life. What? All who what? Appointed for eternal life believed. Does that sound remotely like chosen? There are apparently some who are appointed for eternal life. And when they heard the gospel, now this addresses questions some of you have. We'll go over this again next week or the week after about, well, if God knows all this, he's already appointed people, he's already chosen people, why do we evangelize? Read Romans chapter 10. How will they hear? How will they know? Unless someone goes and tells them. And here, you have the announcement being made to these Gentiles. They received the word gladly with excitement and enthusiasm. And all who were appointed believed. I don't know how clear you can get. Well, let's move on. Let's look at some more verses. Turn to Romans chapter 9. This is a classic passage. Classic passage. Romans chapter 9. Verse 13. 
just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now remember that, it goes way back. And God just makes his declaration, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And notice the, the reply now to verse 13. God's talking about choosing. He very, just very simply says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God made his choice. Do you see that? And now look at the response in verse 14. Verse 14, and this is a typical human response. Well, what should we say then? Is God unjust? Is God unjust by choosing one over the other? It seems like it on the surface of it, doesn't it? But what is Paul's response? Not at all. Not at all. He says no in the, in the strongest possible way that you can say no in Greek. No way! Not! Is God unjust? Is God unjust? No, not at all. Look at verse 15. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's saying, I will do precisely what I want to do. I mean, that, that ought to cause you to sit up and take notice. God is sovereign. It gets better. Look at verse 16. It. Salvation does not depend, therefore, on man's desire or effort, but on God's what? So what does salvation depend on? Does it depend on your desire? Does it depend on your effort? No, it depends on what? God's mercy. Anything else there? This is vital for us to understand. God chooses. He chooses some to be his own. He chooses to exhibit mercy. Let's go on. Let's go on. He says in verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you. Is God sovereign over Pharaoh? He raised up Pharaoh to display his power in Pharaoh. And he says that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Is that hard? Is that difficult? Do we wrestle with that? Sure we do. But we have to suspend judgment. You can't judge God. He's God. He's God. Because when you, when you submit to that temptation to judge God, when you start digging your heels in and say, well, it's your pride. It's your pride surfacing again. Peter later on in this letter will say what? Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. That's our great battle, isn't it? That's our great battle to live by faith, to trust God. Now look at in verse 19. Somebody's going to say in verse 19, he says, well, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? Again, that question rises up. Well, if God has mercy on whom he has the mercy and he hardens whom he hardens, how can we possibly be held to blame for our sin? How can we possibly, how can God possibly hold us accountable? Do you follow the logic of his argument here? Now I want you to notice, <laughs> I want you to notice Paul's response. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who are we to judge him? Who are we to tell him what to do? Who are we to question his purpose and motive and plan? Who are we? See, that, that, just, that, that just goes right to the heart of where we struggle, doesn't it? Indeed, who are we? Let's read on. He said, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, God, why did you make me like this? 
See, when you, when, you, when you crab against what God has done, how he's made you, when you complain about that, that is coveting against God. Very serious. And again, it arises from our pride. He says, again, what, shall, what is formed? Shall it say, uh, why did you make me like this? Does the potter, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble uses and some for common use? Is that, is that, is that a fair thing? Does the potter have the right over the clay? Can he make some, some things for, for one use and some for another use? Isn't that his prerogative as the potter? Yeah. So far, so good, huh? So far, so good. All right. What if God, what if God choosing to show his wrath, does God have a right to display his wrath? Big time. What if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Whoa. Sit on that one for a couple minutes. What if God, choosing to show his wrath, make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if God, choosing... What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. Beloved, God has just as much right to display his wrath and power and justice against ungodliness as he does to put on display his grace, love, and mercy for those he elects. Would you agree? How can we argue with God? How can we argue with him? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? When we do so, we are only showing our pride. We are only showing the ignorance of our finite minds. We're limited in our understanding, limited in our comprehension of the infinite God. Remember Job? All of the stuff that went on in the book of Job. Finally, you get way back down to the end of the book of Job, and Job does what? He says, I put my hand over my mouth. I shut my mouth. You teach me. I'm quitting talking. I've been all over the map trying to figure out you, figure out what you've done, why you've done it, why this has happened to me. In the previous chapters, remember, God just kind of puts him in his place. Says, Where were you when I hung the moon and the stars, when I set the boundaries to the seas, when I created and so forth? Read those last few chapters of Job. It just takes your breath away. And all of a sudden, Job goes, I'm not going to say another word. God, you instruct me. Who are you, old man, who answers back to God? Beloved, God's purposes and God's ways are inscrutable. You know what that means? It means they're mysterious. They're hard to understand. You say, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I don't either. It's just as hard for me as it is for you. But I believe it. Because that's what it says. That's exactly what it says. It tells me God has chosen some. He's chosen some to, to exhibit his mercy. And something inside of me wants to fight it, wants to argue with it, wants to say it's unfair. I don't understand it all. I believe it, though. I believe it. Because it's there in the Bible. And it's there in the Bible over and over and over and over and over, as we've seen. And as we shall continue to see. Verse 16 again. Salvation does not depend on man's desire. It doesn't depend on man's effort, but it depends upon God who will have mercy on whomever he decides to have mercy. Beloved, when you begin to understand the doctrine of election, it is going to impact your life in ways that you can't even begin to imagine now. 
You are going to be enlivened. You're going to be empowered. You're going to love God like you've never loved Him before. Never loved Him before. You want a faith that's alive? You want a faith that's dynamic? You begin to study and meditate and get a hold of this doctrine of election and it will so impact your life. I promise you. I promise you. People are already coming to tell me that. After just a week or so, people are saying, something's happening to me. Something, it's good. I'm excited. I'm excited. My, I'm on fire. God's doing something in me. God's doing something. Look at chapter 11, verse 5, Romans. In verse 5, talking about the remnant of Israel in God's plan, so too, now the so too basically uh, refers back to the prophet Elijah. And remember when Elijah was whining and crying and he thought he was the only one left? And God says, get up, stop crying. I have 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. That's what he's referring to. So he says, so too, just like Elijah, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's a remnant of Israel chosen by grace. That's what he tells us. God's gracious choice. God's gracious choice. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Listen to here. Listen to what Paul says here. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. God has called us into fellowship with his Son. Salvation, what? Is a direct work of God. He's called us into fellowship with his Son. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Turn over to Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. This is, a, a, this is a, a powerful passage. Ephesians chapter 1, read with me verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Question. When did he choose us? When did he choose us? When did this happen? When were you chosen? Does that blow your mind? Before we were born. Before anybody was born. Before there was a world. We were chosen. That's what that passage tells us. I don't know about you, but that just, take, that just takes my breath away. Can we handle this? Can we handle this thought? Listen to this. Let me just say it another way to you. As long as there is God, we have been chosen. Amen. <laughs> yes. Isn't that what that verse says, in effect? As long as there has been God, we have been chosen. You say, how long has God been around? Forever. <laughs> Forever, hasn't he? Now, if the Bible teaches us, he is eternal, without beginning, without end. He's been around forever. Well, beloved, we were chosen in eternity past. And as, as long as God has existed, his elect have been in his mind. We're going to get to that next week, too. Now, look at Let's go further. On the basis of his choice now, on the basis of his choice, look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says this. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his what? His pleasure and will. Whose pleasure and will? His. And we'll talk again next week, if not next week, the week after about predestined, what all that means. Now look at verse 6. He says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. To the praise of what? His glorious grace. Not ours. It's not ours. His glorious grace. He chose us. He chose us. 
As long as he has been God, we have been chosen. That's what he tells us. Whew! That is awesome, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? As long as he has been God, as long as he has existed, as long as he has existed, I've been chosen. If you belong to him, you've been chosen. You've been in his plan for as long as he has existed, if you belong to him. You're in his mind. That is an intensely thrilling thought. I was in his mind for all eternity. Verses 11 and 12. In him... We also have been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Does God have everything under control? Is he working out everything in conformity with his will? That's what the Bible tells us. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm excited. I'm excited. God's doing an awesome work. And again, if you look... He says, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, now here he says it again, for the praise of his glory. He says it a second time. Not ours. His glory. He says, I share my glory with what? No one. No one. Look at verse four, 13 and 14. He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now notice, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. In other words, beloved, we've been sealed. If you belong to him, not only has he, have you been in his mind since eternity past, before the foundation of the world, the creation of the world, but when he brought you into his kingdom, when he saved you, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit. You have a guarantee, and he is just waiting until he brings all of those that he has chosen into the family. That's what he tells us. Can you get behind that? God elects, God predestines, God secures for one great ultimate purpose, that the glory of his grace may be praised forever and ever and ever with a white-hot affection. No wonder all of the creatures in heaven, no wonder all the angels are praising him. And in the words of the book of Revelation, 24 hours a day, nonstop. We have no category for that. We have no category for that, but to the praise of his glory. Beloved, the goal of God in election, among other things, I want to suggest to you the goal of God in election is the elimination of all human pride. The elimination of all, of all self-determination. The elimination of all self-reliance. The elimination of all boasting on our part in ourselves. This is what I did. If we're going to boast, we boast who in who? You boast in the Lord. You boast in the Lord. God is my Savior. God is my Savior. God is my very present help in trouble. God is, God is. That's what we boast in. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul is so encouraged by the Thessalonian church, the Thessalonian congregation. Like the Philippians, they were special to him. They were beloved, and he didn't know them as well as he knew the Philippians. We're told that he only spent three Sabbaths with them, but they were very, very loved. He says in verse 2, he says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Now, I want you to notice, he says, I've looked at your life. Verse 3. And what did he see when, they looked at his, when he looked at their life? We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted in by love, 
and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You ought to underline that verse and make it a, make it a verse that's special to you. What's Paul saying? He's saying, we looked at your life. It's obvious. It's apparent that he has chosen you. He's chosen you. Dear brothers, loved by God, we know that he has chosen you. Verse 4. We know that he's chosen you. Why? We just look at your life. It's apparent to us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13. Look at this. I don't know how it can be said any more clearly than this. I don't know how anyone could not see this. Verse 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, but we, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. What was given to us before the beginning of time? Yeah, salvation before the beginning of time. He has known, he has known us. He has known that we were the elect from before the beginning of time. He has granted us in his mind as long as he existed that we should be saved. Is that what it says? Is that what he's telling us? And it's all according to what? His own purpose and His grace. Not us. Not because anything we have done. Beloved, it's not because of anything that we have done. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to what Paul says. This is startling. He says, Therefore I endure everything. And did Paul endure a lot? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you read the book of Acts. He endured a lot. Listen to his own testimony in Corinthians and Philippians and such. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What's his point? What's his message? What's his ministry all about? His ministry is to reach the elect. His ministry is to reach those who are chosen. Why should you and I witness to people? To reach them. So that they might know. Again, Romans chapter 10 talks about that very clearly. Revelation chapter 13. Let me call your attention to the book of Revelation chapter 13. In, in verse 8, John writes about the, the beast, the antichrist of the tribulation time that is yet still future. And he says, in effect, everybody is going to worship the beast. Everybody's going to worship the Antichrist. But listen how he says it. Everyone whose names have not been written from the creation of the world in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain. Who's going to worship the beast? Everyone whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, the Lamb's book of life. Those are the people who are going to worship the beast. Those are the people who are going to be seduced. When was your name written down? Before the foundation, before the creation of the world, before the beginning of time. Beloved, from the creation of the world, when was that? When was that? I don't know. Long time ago. Long time ago. As long as God has existed, He's had us in His mind. As long as God has existed, He's had us in His mind, predetermined to love us and to make us like His Son. Is that His purpose? To conform us to the likeness of Jesus. And He wrote our names in His book before the world began. 
My, 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 my. My, 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 my. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. He says the same thing here. Here again, speaking about the beast who is going to be worshipped. And those on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, they're the ones who are going to worship him. See, we're told here in kind of a, a backdoor way, if you will, we're told here that Christians are named are those whose names have been written in the book of life. From the be before the beginning of time. Before creation from all eternity. So when see, when someone says to you, when someone says to you, what religion are you? What religion are you? You can say, I'm one of the chosen. I'm one of the chosen. And they say, a chosen by whom? And you say, God. God chose me. Oh, he did. Yes. Really? When did God chose you? Forever. For as long as he's been God, he's chosen me and he's loved me. He set his heart upon me. Why? It didn't have anything to do with me. It didn't have anything to do with me. I just showed up and I was elect. I just showed up and I was elect. Think about it. Do you have anything to do with it? Nothing. Didn't you just show up? When did you discover your elect? After you got saved. And you began to read the Bible and it began to fit and fall in place. Well, didn't you do some kind of good works to deserve it? No. You see, I wasn't even around when God decided it. How could I do good works to deserve it? There was no me around. <laughs> Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. Notice what he says here. This is powerful. They will make war against the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And notice, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Woo! Man! We're going to be there to see the whole thing. Glory! Who's going to be with Him? We are His chosen ones. Hallelujah. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. This is the final judgment. This is the great white throne. This is amazing. Verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a great white throne. How many want to make sure their name is written in the Lamb's book of life? How many, how many, how many would say, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I do. I do. But at the same time, something, something in us struggles with that, doesn't it? Something in us struggles with that. Let me offer you some comfort. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. This is, uh, this is uh, Jesus in Nazareth, remember? This is the, the great event in the synagogue. He returns home. Okay? Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Notice, everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So he, he was always in fellowship, never missed church. As he stood up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He was the guest speaker of the morning. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. Familiar passage, most of us are aware of this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now this is a messianic passage. 
All the Jews understood this. They, they knew one of the ways that they would recognize the Messiah, the Messiah would come and he would be doing these things. Because Isaiah, Isaiah said he would. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them... Now he... Now, so you would read, the, you would read the, the scripture and then you would co- comment on it. That would, that's a normal practice. And he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Notice. Notice. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. So far, so good? Everything's running smooth right now? So far, so good? All right, let's read on. Watch what happens. Verse 25. He begins to say some things to him that they're just not going to make him happy. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. You know what he's telling them about? You know what he's saying to them right there? He's talking to them about God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. Lots of widows. Lots of lepers. And God picked none of them except one widow and one leper. And he, not even a Jew, Naaman the Syrian. Now, notice what happens. Notice their response. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue, now just a few minutes earlier, they were what? They were all amazed. They were just liking what he was saying. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill upon which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Let me tell you something. The respectable... The religious leaders of Israel despised the doctrine of election. Especially when it pointed out that they were not the elect. That's what he's telling them. You're not in. You're not in. Would that get your attention? Well, but we can't debate the truth. You can't debate the truth. This is the truth. You can't debate it. It's so clear. How can you argue with this? They did not want to hear it. Very simply. And many today do not want to hear it. But it's the truth. It's the truth. You see, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, we're told this. We're told, the Lord God Almighty reigns. The Lord God Almighty reigns. God in heaven is the controller and the dispenser of all his creation. Every creature, every element of his creation. The Lord God Almighty reigns. Scripture says that that as the Most High, he rules amid the armies of the heavens, and none can say to him, what are you doing? None can stay his hand. Read Daniel chapter 4. Read Nebuchadnezzar's words. Read Revelation 19, 14. Beloved, he is the Almighty who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Not my will. Not your will. After the counsel of his own will. He fulfills all his own purposes. Makes all his own promises come to pass. The Lord God Almighty reigns. 
He is the heavenly potter who takes the lump of clay, fallen humanity. He takes the lump of clay and he fashions it the way he wants to fashion it. Why did you make me like this? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? How arrogant. How prideful. He is the decider and the determiner of the destiny of every person. You see that when we talk about predestination. He is the controller of every detail in every individual's life. You will see that very clearly when we talk about predestination. All this simply says, God is God. God is God. When you begin to understand and grasp the doctrine of election, you can't help but fall down and begin to worship Him and praise Him and thank Him and adore Him. And it brings security to your life. It brings peace to your life. A.W. Pink said this. He said, the only reason, the only reason anybody believes in election is because he finds it taught in God's Word. The only reason anybody could believe it is because you find it taught in God's Word. No man, no group of men ever originated this doctrine. Nobody would think this up. Nobody. It's too absurd. It runs against the grain of our natural being and the way we think. It has to be from God. Like the doctrine of eternal punishment. Is that a difficult doctrine? The doctrine of eternal punishment? Yeah. You see, just like that doctrine, it conflicts with our carnal thinking, our carnal minds. And it's abhorrent to the unregenerate heart. People tighten their jaws. They dig their heels in. Like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Like the doctrine of the miraculous birth of our Savior Jesus. The truth of election must be received with simple, unquestioning faith. That's all. And so the nature of election, the nature of election, God's divine will selects some for salvation. Selects some for salvation. Is that hard for us to handle? I confess to you again, it's, I struggle with this. I struggle with it. But I believe it with all my heart. Why? Because it's taught in the Bible. It's taught in the Bible. There's something exciting and something thrilling about this great reality. And at the same time, there's something terrifically humbling about it. This doctrine literally destroys any self-boasting. This doctrine literally destroys any, any, any attempt to determine my own future. Any self-determination. Any pride. What can we claim? What can we claim? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. When it comes to salvation. It's all of God. You say, but, but what, about, what about the people that aren't elect? Big question, huh? What about the people that aren't elect? The Bible says they go to hell because of their unbelief. And God can't be blamed for that. That's what it says. Does the Bible say that? Yes. You say, I don't understand that. That's right. I don't understand it either. But you know, the longer I live as a Christian, the more I'm learning to trust God. There was a time when, when I, I really struggled over this issue early in my Christian experience. And I couldn't resolve it. I, I worked hard because we always want to bring closure, don't we? We want to tie things up in a nice, neat package with a bow on it and present it. And so every, all, of our, all of our loose ends are together. We have a compulsion to do that. And I couldn't resolve this issue. And so I was so frustrated that I, I said, that's it. I'm going to quit. So I, made, I, was gonna, I had this dramatic gesture. I was going to quit God. It was during the winter. It was much like uh, 
we, we, this season right now, and it was cold and windy and blustery, and, and I, I took my Bible and I went down to the beach, and I remember I just mar- marched, marched straight down to the water's edge, all prepared to throw my Bible into the ocean and say, I quit! <laughs> Out of frustration because I couldn't resolve this issue. I foolishly thought I could get my mind around it. And so I reared back to throw my Bible into the ocean. And I got this thought. You can't quit. You know too much. (laughs) I said, that's right. I just want to quit. But I can't quit. I can't quit. I know too much. So I put my Bible back into my arm, tucked my tail between my legs, Walked all the way back up the beach. And I said this, walking back up the beach, God, I don't understand this. But I know you understand it. And I trust you. I trust you. You see, we tell our kids much the same, don't we? We give our kids some instruction. We tell them some things. And they say, I don't understand. And we say... You know, even if I tried to explain it to you, you'd never understand it. But one day, one day, one day, one day. Isn't it amazing? The older we get, the smarter our parents are. (laughs) You ever notice that? Jesus said, you'll die in your sins if you don't believe in me. John chapter 8, verse 24. He said, you're condemned because you do not believe in me. It's unbelief. I can't harmonize all these things. God does it. And he does it, beloved, in perfect justice. He does it in perfect justice. The doctrine of election is not given to us to confuse us. It's given to us for two reasons. To devastate our pride and to elicit our praise. To devastate our pride and to elicit our praise. And we're going to find out more about that next week. Part three. Amen. Heavenly Father, there's so much more to say. We've only just begun to scratch the surface. But Lord, we're beginning to understand what your word says, and even if we can't fully grasp in our minds all that that implies, we know that you're calling us to walk by faith. Help us, O Lord. Lord, we don't know all the answers. You do, though. And we thank you that you are gracious, that you have been merciful to us. Father, as we prepare to come to your table... We ask, Lord, that you would just remind us of these things. Lord, stir our hearts. We give you thanks. We love you tonight. We're going to take communion as a congregation. I encourage you just to remain in your seats, if you would. The communion servers are going to distribute communion to us. If you're a Christian and you're with us as a guest this evening, we invite you to take communion with us. The communion servers will pass the trays down through the rows. The matzah crackers will come first, take a little piece, and the cup of juice will come second. Take one of each, hold on to them. And as is our custom, we'll wait till everyone is served. Use the intervening time to reflect on your own relationship and what Jesus has done for you. Give him thanks. And if there be something in your life that's out of order, it's perfect time to say, Lord, help me with this. Help me with this. Depend on his grace on His grace. And then when everyone is served, I'll come back and we'll all take communion together.
there's something about that name, Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who's taken away our sins. He's our Passover Lamb. Much as the Jews would celebrate Passover and they would have a scapegoat and a sacrificial lamb, Jesus is the final sacrifice. That's why he's called the Lamb of God. He's the perfect sacrifice. He died for you and he died for me. Your sins and my sins were placed on him. Your guilt and my guilt, your grief and my grief, they're all placed on him. It's not a myth. It's not just a story. It's the truth. God means for us to know the freedom of life in him. He means for us to live lives that are hopeful and triumphant. Lives that are empowered to be lived for the praise of his glory. But until we understand who we are, until we understand how we got here, we won't be able to do that. Until we throw ourselves fully and wholly on his mercy. Until we see and understand as, as, as best as we can. It's by his grace. It's by his grace. Then and only then are you, are you free to just trust him and let him move in you and through you. Your love for him will just, will just continue to grow. It won't be just words, I love you, Lord. But there will be a present and powerful reality to that love. He gave us these elements. He gave us this meal to remember him by. The bread represents, obviously, his body and the juice, his blood. Blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. His body that was pierced for us. We take these moments and we remember him. Amidst all of the stuff that's going on in our life, we stop, we get quiet, we say, Lord, I remember you. Thank you. Thank you for purchasing me. Thank you for paying for me. Thank you, Lord. If you've trusted Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus and he is your Savior, if he bore your sins on that cross, eat the bread. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for having mercy on us. You have been merciful to me. You have been merciful to me. I love you, Lord. I look forward to your strengthening in my life even more and more. I look forward, Lord, to what you're doing in me and through me. Lord, I lift my cup to you. Thank you for washing me clean. Thank you, Lord. To Jesus. Amen? Let's stand together and uh, let's let's sing that song. There's something about that name. Thanks. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. Like the fragrance after the 